Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Richard Owens, a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurie Institute and author of the new policy paper, Reality Check, Dispelling the Myths Around the Benefits of Drug Price Controls. The paper, which is the second in an ongoing series, challenges a number of myths that underpin Canada's model of drug approvals and state-mandated pricing, including, for instance, that pharmaceuticals are simply priced too high. I'm grateful to speak with Richard about this recent paper, the ongoing series, and its ambitious policy recommendations. Richard, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on your recent policy paper. Thank you, Sean, and it's great to be with you. If it's okay, I think it's wise that we start with some basic context for listeners. What is the Patent Medicines Prices Review Board, or PMPRB? How does it work? And what's its role in our overall system of drug approvals, access, and pricing? Yeah, of course it's okay. And I think it's important that we do so because the uh, landscape in this policy area is so complex and so replete with acronyms of all flavors and varieties that uh, beginning with a bit of orientation is important. But it's also important to keep in mind that at root, we have a fairly simple policy lever, which is misapplied. But let's start with the PMPRB. As you say, the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board is a federal government, um, Canadian federal government agency, which controls wholesale drug prices in Canada, essentially all drug prices in Canada, although some developments have have somewhat diminished its importance. Uh, It was created in 1987 in response to Canada's desire to improve the environment for drug pharmaceutical research in Canada by improving intellectual property protection for pharmaceuticals under the Mulroney government with Bill C-22 to try to undo some of the horrific damage caused to this sector of the economy by Pierre Trudeau when, after a long period of sort of favorable nationalistic treatment for drug companies, he is, uh, by way of compulsory licensing, he took drug patents out of the Patent Act altogether and just left drug companies, you know, twisting in the wind. So as the Maroonie government tried to rectify this wrong, it palliated opposition to to these reforms, opposition that was based on fear of higher drug prices, opposition that came out of a high inflationary environment by creating the PMPRB. It was an ad hoc, uh, extempore kind of policy that that was much more proactive than based on any experience with high prices. 
And it, we've been we've been stuck with it ever since. The way in which the PMP works is to compare potential or 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 uh, requested drug prices for import into Canada with a basket of countries, an average of, of prices based uh, across um, international comparisons, and then it keeps the price at which a drug is launched in Canada below that average. That's really helpful context, Richard. As you say, the PMPRB should be understood as something of a political compromise to advance much-needed patent reform at the time. You've written extensively about Canada's system of drug pricing in the past, particularly in the context of proposed regulations from the current Trudeau government that would have led to even tighter price control for drug makers. But in the first paper of this series, you went beyond merely calling for PMPRB reform, which you've done in the past, to actually recommending that the agency be dismantled. What has changed since you first started tackling these issues? And why do you think that now is the time to dismantle the PMPRB? Yeah, you know, I I started tackling these issues about four years ago. Um, My first paper was written with Wayne Critchley, who actually used to be a member of the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board. And, and we undertook that analysis in response to new regulations, which had been promoted by the PMPRB and introduced by the government to try to update the PMB to, to um, make it more effective in the current environment, uh, because it was designed in an environment where uh, pharmaceutical science was very different than it is today, and where bulk pr- purchasing uh, wasn't really a factor. So, so it, was, it was feeling like it needed update. These new regulations were absolutely confiscatory by their own admission, reducing prices in Canada, already very low, uh, by a further 20 to 25 percent, by others' calculations more in the, re- in, in the line of 46 to 82 percent. So here we had um, we had a bad agency which was going to turn uh, its operations into one that would have been a disaster for the Canadian life sciences industries and for healthcare in this country. So we, we leapt onto those regulations, but as you looked at them, it's really hard to avoid the question of, you know, why do we have this agency at all? Why, why are we doing this? Clearly doing it, doing price controls of drugs as badly as these regulations would have us do is worse. But now, price controls are pretty bogus economics. Why do them at all? So I actually developed my opposition to the PMPRB overall pretty quickly once I moved on from that first paper. Once you, you know, once you see how serious the economic consequences of this Procrustean method of price controls are, and you see how poorly the PMPRB, in fact, by its own admission, is suited to cope with the current market, then I think you're led ineluctably to the conclusion of getting rid of an obsolete policy uh, lever, an obsolete policy agency. You know, the simplicity of this problem, the problem of price controls, is obfuscated by some of the factors we talked about in response to your first question, you know, the the terrible complexity of PMPRB guidelines, the arcane nature of intellectual property protection for drugs, the uh, the huge um, market for pharmaceuticals, the complexity of their operation, chemistry, and so on. But fundamentally, 
you know, it's not that complicated. Price controls kill supply. There's a very flimsy intellectual basis for the um, PMPRB and indeed a, a flimsy legal and constitutional one too, as it happens. So it wasn't as big a leap as it seemed to go from trying to rein in the excesses of the PMPRB to saying, no, it doesn't do any good. Let's just discard it altogether. Let me ask one more big picture question, Richard, which draws on the first paper in the series before we move into some of the specific myths that you aim to tackle in the second most recent one. One of the explanations for long-lasting public institutions is a kind of historic complacency that they've been with us for a long time and ergo they must persist. But the PMPRB, as you say, has only been around since the mid-1980s. So it's not too difficult to imagine a world in which it, it doesn't exist. What happened with drug approvals and pricing prior to the PMPRB? How did drug pricing work in the Canadian market? Yeah, great, great question. And, and it's worth, worth noting that not only was this created in 1987, so it's fairly recent, but it was created in response to anticipated, not actual problems, right? It was a sop to opposition, not a response to empirical data. So in fact, we have this, this speculative agency which has gone on to reify and impact itself in the body politic um, and, and, try, and to continue to try to justify its existence as it goes along. Before it existed, uh, we had um, ex exceedingly weak, in fact, eventually almost non-existent intellectual property protection for pharmaceuticals in Canada. And of course, this dramatically lessened the pricing power uh, of companies trying to import them. A large part of this policy, by the way, was to try to encourage development of a pharmaceutical industry in Canada. And the net result actually wasn't lower prices. Often, the net result was that domestic companies that didn't supply enough drugs anyway, but were able to do so uh, at, at prices that were essentially protected by discouraging, discouraging imports. So there were, there were some perverse effects. But um, we had a situation in which there were many fewer drugs than there are now, and drugs priced over a much smaller range. They were all so-called small molecule drugs. The larger molecule, the biologic drugs, personalized drugs, orphan drugs, so on, these have all come later. So the problem of very high-priced drugs is one that's emerged as pharmaceutical science has developed in leaps and bounds over the past uh, couple of decades or a couple of scores of years uh, for a variety of reasons, including in particular um, advances in DNA science. So the other factor, I guess, was that we had a, a very high inflation environment coming, in, coming out of the early 1980s, and you had a focus on prices in economic policy, which uh, we may have to, to revert to, I guess, given today's current excesses but which uh, is, hasn't really characterized economic policy now. So you had drugs generally being more affordable, you had much weaker intellectual property protections, and you had uh, the government of the day um, trying to launch into a new project to try to encourage, through intellectual property protections, um, a more vigorous life sciences industry in Canada. And that's, that, was, that prospect created the fear that led to the creation of the PMPRB. 
that's a, a fascinating history, Richard. You know, what I'm hearing from you is at this point, it would be difficult to look backwards for any indication of how the Canadian market might function independent of something like the PMPRB because the the pre-PMPRB conditions, including with respect to intellectual property, are quite different. That kind of uncertainty feeds into some of the myths that you outline in the second paper, which I'd like to take up now. If the PMPRB was dismantled, ostensibly our system of drug price controls would, would also be eliminated. Your, your paper argues that this is a good thing, that the myths behind price controls are wrong and unfounded, as you've, you've outlined so far here. Why do you think these myths persist? Is it about politics? Is it bad reasoning? Or something else that has contributed to the durability of our system of drug price controls? Yeah, that's a fantastic question of sort of wide political science and psychological import, which <laughs> you may be better able to answer than I. You know, we've we've always had in Canada, it seems, this unhealthy and almost vindictive focus on drug prices, this inchoate fear of dying because uh, we're unable to afford a drug. but it's a, And it's a fear which I think is partially fed by the circumstances you just so nicely put your finger on, which is that it operates in a completely unrealistic world. We have controlled drug prices in Canada. We have controlled drug prices almost everywhere, virtually everywhere else, with the exception of the United States. It's impossible to tell how much money the PMBRB saves us, although it alleges it saves us money, because nobody knows what a market price is. It, 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 it's an unreal realm in which empirical data <laughs> are very hard to come by and very hard to compare. You know, I think that um, you know, public choice theory teaches us that government agencies see the world through distorting lenses, and they spread policy justifications, which help them uh, persist. A lot of opinion leadership in this area has been provided by government and by the PMPRB, and they have their own livelihood and their interests to defend. And I'm sure they you know, believe in what they're doing, although it takes a narrow perspective to do that. And a lot of it comes down perhaps to a deep distrust and misunderstanding and even resentment of the benign powers of free and open markets and the overall systemic benefits of a vigorous drug development and distribution system. Um, not to mention not wanting to admit that they've been, been wrong all along. I guess finally, you know, there's another more potentially more insidious motive at work, which is that a lot of drugs in Canada are paid for by government. They are purchased for younger people in some provinces pursuant to government mandated drug plans for older people across the country by our, um, our, our age, uh, specific Pharmacare benefits um, and in institutions uh, in large volumes by by government acquisition. So, you know, a lot of it is simply uh, prices show up on the public ledgers, and politicians have a motive to, and bureaucrats have motives to try to keep them lower uh, at the cost of uh, unfortunately patient illness and lives. Uh, that's fascinating, Richard. The idea that the government itself has perverse incentives to keep drug prices low, even if that comes at the expense of domestic innovation, domestic production, et cetera, uh, which we'll come back to later. Uh, one of the most pervasive arguments in favor of price controls, though, is that pharmaceutical companies would otherwise 
gouge customers. You know, it's, it's quite possible that drug prices would indeed rise in a more market-based environment, yet you argue that this isn't a bad thing. In fact, it would be in everybody's interest if these companies were actually more profitable. Why? Help me and listeners understand that point. It's absolutely true that the more profitable the drug industry becomes, presumably to a, to a certain point, the better off we are because uh, R&D investment is directly linked to revenue, uh, revenue, revenues and profits. It's not at all surprising, right? Because how else are these drug companies going to maintain their revenues and their profits in the future than by discovering new products uh, with R&D investments that are proportional to the revenues they're trying to sustain? So more R&D translates directly to more drug discoveries, which in turn translates into rather vast welfare gains for all of us, particularly in, in terms of years of life. It's been fairly well estimated that uh, a, a dollar taken out of um, pharma, pharmaceutical research and development results in a net social loss, social cost of $7. The leverage that we get in our healthcare systems in terms of more productive people, in terms of longer lives, from investment in, in pharmaceuticals is colossal. Um, and we ignore it at our, at our peril. So we all greatly benefit uh, from these um, dynamic benefits. Anecdotally, you know, the evidence of, of price gouging by pharmaceutical companies, whatever, you know, whatever price gouging may be in, your, in, in one's mind, it's actually, it's pretty rare, right? Overall, we benefit greatly from the drug development system um, as higher prices uh, in Canada in particular will be offset by greater access to drugs. Price controls mean we have many, many fewer drugs in Canada than we would otherwise have. New therapies, more productive people, longer lives, et cetera. Not to mention the economic gains uh, from a vigorous life sciences industry. It's also important to remember uh, that it's not just a system gain personal cost if prices go up. And by the way, it's not it's not clear how much prices would go up in Canada if we got rid of the PMPRB, depending on the circumstances in which that happened. But many factors limit drug pricing, including competition between therapies, the drug company's desire to maximize revenues as opposed to you know, single profit, single sales profits, uh, perceptions of the value delivered by a drug. So, you know, Essentially, we can trust the market for reasonably rational dis distribution outcomes, especially for the very limited period of market exclusivity that drugs have. It's just a few years to recover uh, R&D and approval costs that generally um, come out to the billions of dollars, right? The risks and costs that these companies undertake to get us our therapies are enormous. And we can't just shut our eyes and try to make these costs go away. It's, it's not going to happen. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. 
your point, Richard, about the opportunity costs of our model is fascinating. It sort of reflects Bassiet's observation about the seen and the unseen, whereby policymakers and consumers see high prices, but what they don't see is the investment in drugs that remain outside of our country. Even if one accepts the premise that prices would indeed rise, as you say, the magnitude of that price increase is hard to predict. There may be certain drugs, especially ones for rare diseases or medical conditions that are priced very high in order for companies to recoup the significant R&D costs. As you mentioned, though, in those cases, governments could pursue ostensibly different options to help consumers purchase those drugs, including bulk purchasing or consumer subsidies or some other approach. Why do you think price controls have been the default response? What, in other words, has caused policymakers to accept a policy consensus in favor of price controls in this particular area of Canada's economy? <laughs> yeah, it's so weird, isn't it? <laughs> like Everybody knows price controls have terrible um, side effects. And one would have thought the one area where we least want uh, the loss of supply and loss of investment that price controls entail is pharmaceuticals. And yet it persists. You know, it's explicable perhaps only by government unwillingness to be creative, to revise its policies and approaches, and to ignore the terrible negative impacts. And if you talk to the PMPRB itself about uh, loss of investment in Canada, about unavailability of drugs, about shortages of supply, and they're like the three monkeys. It's like, oh, well, none of that happens, which isn't true, <laughs> right? Um, look, price controls, if, if you in, in the context of pharmacare, and I knew yourself, Sean, I've written about this um, in a very good article, I remember. Um, in the context of pharmacare, we've looked at affordability of drugs in Canada. We don't have an affordability problem. That's not to say that every single person can always afford the drug he or she needs at any particular moment. But, but population-wide, we're actually pretty well covered. People make reasonable livings here. We're a wealthy country. Many most people, in fact, have um, have coverage under under private insurance policies for prescription drugs. So why why bear the costs of reducing prices for everybody when you could have a more targeted subsidy for people who really need it? It's an absurdly clumsy and overbroad policy. You know, it's also just cheap, I guess. I mean, by reducing drug prices for everybody, government avoids having to pay full price for the people who need it. But, you know, obviously, in a, on a broad scale, that's going to, uh, to, 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 to work out. Forcing suppliers to subsidize their own products, which is what price controls do. I mean, that's an absurd, an absurd idea. Now, you're right to point to um, orphan and personalized drug therapies, new biologics as well, because many of these are considerably more expensive. I mean, we're not talking aspirin here. Some of these are tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, for a single for a year or a single treatment. Um, so we're looking at, at fairly big ticket items. The response in government has been to say, oh, well, we, we, we can't pay that, so we'll reduce the prices by 84%. Well, that's not going to work, right? So it, it's an interesting point where pharmaceutical science has brought the policy of price controls to the brink of incoherence as a, as a policy response. We're going to have to work our way through the problem of how to pay for these very expensive drugs. 
Um, should they be paid by the public? You know, when and why? Should there be a copay? How much? For which drugs? They're difficult problems, but they're not going to be resolved. Um, they're only going to be compounded by a, by a price control system. You know, it, it's hard. They're harder to deal with in the Canadian environment where we have socialized healthcare and the presumption that, well, you know, the best cure available that anybody needs at any time is what's, what, what we're going to get. Of course, our system doesn't actually work that way. It rations care in all sorts of ways. And it's not clear that uh, everybody is going to get, you know, a potentially multi-million dollar gene therapy paid for by the public purse. But what is absolutely crystal clear is that we cannot have a system that operates to save itself money at the cost of giving people no choices about saving their own lives. It is absolutely better if a drug, even a cost maybe a quarter million dollars, is available for purchase, even without coverage or public subsidy, than if it isn't available at all. We can't let people die on the hill of preserving price controls. Look, markets develop over time. New drugs introduced um, at great prices, at, at very high prices, will find production efficiencies, will find economies of scale as they are rolled out. Prices will come down. Financing plans will develop. Charities will develop to make drugs available to those, those in need. But, you know, it, it is the problem in microcosm. We can't leave the lives of Canadians wholly at the mercy of bureaucratic rigidity and fears of innovation and potential costs with respect to these drugs. It's no different than what we're doing with price controls now. It's just that, as you so nicely refer to Bastia, people don't see the unavailabilities and problems with our current system. It's going to be a little more acute when you know someone's child with cystic fibrosis can't get the life-saving drug and dies. Um, because of because of the reluctance of the Canadian bureaucracy to to let drug prices rise to their normal level, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, that's well said, Richard. You know, at times these types of policies are enacted in the name of compassion and equity. But what's interesting is when you talk to families touched by rare diseases, oftentimes they're in favor of eliminating price controls precisely because they stand in the way of those families accessing drugs that they think can help address their health issues. So, you know, when you think when you think about it that way, how we think about compassion and equity might change. We've been talking so far, Richard, about some of the different factors that have contributed to the durability of uh, our current model. Um, and the political consensus that has seemingly built up around it. One of the arguments in the paper is that Canada and others are free riders on America's model of drug development, which rewards firms that come up with major pharmacological developments through its patents and profit models. Why don't you elaborate on this point? How has the American model effectively created something of a moral hazard for Canadian policymakers? Yeah, thanks. That's one of my favorite uh, my favorite observations in the paper. I will just quickly add, though, in relation to the to the point you just made, many patient advocacy groups were vigorously opposed to the new regulations when they came out. So much so that the PMPRB 
tried to exclude them from comment on the new regulations and developed a communications plan to try to taint their testimony. You know, um, they understand the problem because they've got lives at stake. So uh, back to the Americans, you know, it, it's, it's not, of course, just an American system. The, the system of drug development is completely reliant on vast sums of capital, enormous amounts of expertise, and, uh, and a lot of time. And all of that is enabled by intellectual property. There really isn't another or better way to do it, frankly. But the Americans are different than everybody else, it seems, uh, at least to the extent of my research, in that they understand that. And they have the benefits of, by overwhelmingly, the largest and most productive pharmaceutical sector in the world. But they, they alone bear the costs. The trade regulation just doesn't work very well at protecting producers, unfortunately. So, you know, we have a situation in which Canada and many other countries happily take the drugs that are available from the United States those that are willing to be sold here and in other countries at lower prices, and many aren't, so we don't get them. But we're not willing to bear our reasonable share of the cost of developing those drugs. So what happens is that drugs in the United States are three and a half times the price on average, patented drugs, that they are in Canada. Why is that? Well, I would say it's because drug companies absolutely need revenues in order to be able to continue to operate, to continue to bear the enormous compliance costs and risks that we, that society foists on them, and to continue to be able to develop new drugs. And they can't get them anywhere than from the United States. So the, the back of the poor U.S. consumer is breaking under the sustained weight of, of, of bearing, um, virtually all the R&D costs of new pharmaceuticals. Canada um, takes what it can on the cheap, reducing drug prices so enormously, um, and um, essentially importing a consumer surplus, a subsidy, by the from the alien ailing American consumer uh, into Canada with every with every drug purchase. And unfortunately and unsurprisingly, the U.S. consumer is getting a little restive with this situation. So now you've got, um, uh, we, we first had the Trump administration trying to figure out what to do with drug prices and doing it a bit inventively, but I think ultimately ham-fistedly. And one of the things they tried was to allow greater um, reimportation from Canada essentially, if you will, outsourcing drug price controls to another jurisdiction, which is wacky, um, and would have resulted, of course, in destruction of the Canadian drug supply. But worse still, you've now got Democrats in the United States putting forward proposals for price controls in the U.S., similar to those in Canada. That's going to slaughter the pharmaceutical golden goose because suddenly there won't be anybody left to pay. Everybody will want to live in this fantasy world of Things should cost less than they actually do. And it's the wrong, entirely the wrong approach for the U.S., although it's an expedient one. What they should be doing is forcing Canada and others to raise our prices to, to bear our fair share of, uh, of drug price, uh, of drug, drug development costs. You know, we're a wealthy country. We can't afford to pay our share. We've 
benefit greatly from um, healthcare investment, life sciences industry investment in this country if we had a better set of rules and better prices. And that's the only way we're ever going to have, I think, a, a sustainable worldwide market for pharmaceuticals. And uh, you know, hopefully Canada, I've called on Canada to take the lead in trying to unwind this death spiral of, of drug price controls worldwide. I don't, don't hold out much hope that we'll do it, but um, it, is, it is what desperately needs to be done. I, I just have a couple of final questions for you. But on, on this point, Richard, it, it is conventional wisdom in Ottawa and elsewhere that when it comes to defense spending, Canada is something of a free rider. People know, for instance, that we spend far below the, the NATO target of 2% of GDP. Yet there isn't the same recognition that we're a free rider when it comes to drug development globally. Hopefully your paper helps to shape a better understanding amongst policymakers on this point. The COVID-19 experience has drawn attention to our lack of domestic drug development and production capacity. There's now talk of reshoring and friendshoring and all the rest when it comes to ensuring that we have adequate productive capacity in so-called strategic areas, including when it comes to pharmaceuticals. I guess a two-part question, what role has the PMPRB and government regulation played in contributing to our current drug development and production capacity status? And secondly, what should policymakers be doing in order to cultivate more drug development capacity within the country? Yeah, um, you know, it's really interesting. As I mentioned earlier, the PMPRB uh, uh, retails the notion that it has no impact on drug availability in Canada, nor investment here, um, stances which are plainly contradicted by the data. But you know, as soon as COVID hit, um, the government quickly enacted exemptions from PRB, PMPRB controls for COVID vaccines and COVID therapies. So, you know, obviously, even the government, which otherwise drinks the PMPRB Kool-Aid, doesn't really believe its propaganda on these points. Um, you know, I think the existence of price controls, the, the threat over the last four years of going from uh, severe price controls to absolutely draconian price controls, um, and the, the the myths and slanders of the pharmaceutical industry that sustain these price controls. These have created a very hostile environment in Canada for life sciences industries. We have <laughs> we have appallingly low investment levels in R and D. By some measures, ranked about thirty second in the world in life sciences. And by the way, across the economy, we have terrible innovation and investment levels, and we have no goodwill uh, in international supply chains. Reshoring, reshoring is a broader international problem. You know, there are we actually have a terrible risk in that. For instance, ninety six percent of the ingredients to um, antibiotics come from China. Virtually all pharmaceutical ingredients come from China. You know, when Chinese, when, the, when your biggest, most biggest potential enemy has the cure for the only cures for the um, biological weapons it's producing, yeah, that's a strategic issue. It's not Canada's strategic issue per se, but, but the, because, you know, Canada can't solve these problems on its own and it can't provide the range of vaccines or other pharmaceuticals or therapies that our small population is going to need on its own. This is why it's so important not only to maintain domestic investment, but to share equally with other nations in investment, in regulation, in intellectual property standards that sustain a life sciences ecosystem so that when disaster strikes, um, you have um, 
a multi-party response and set of distributed facilities that that can be relied on. We're a very, very long way from doing that now. Um, the problems that we got, they're direct result of price controls, and in particular, these, you know, the recent guidelines, which destroyed the last shreds of confidence uh, in this country. Now, they've been largely withdrawn. We don't know whether they will be reintroduced in a new form or not. Not because people thought they were a bad idea, which they were obviously were, but because, like the PMBR, PRB itself, by the way, they're plainly um, unconstitutional. You know, every surveyed pharmaceutical executive said that they were they were going to um, import fewer drugs and cut back investment here as a result of them, and we just ignored them. What should we do to change this? Uh, you know, <laughs> this gets to some of the other work I've done, not just on life sciences, but on innovation, which is actually a beat I've been trading a bit longer um, than life sciences. And I think first thing we should do in Canada is stop everything we are doing with respect to innovation in life sciences and otherwise, not only getting rid of price controls, but all the all the other counterproductive policies this destructive government happily calls innovation and that are really anti-innovation. You know, the politically motivated subsidies, the complex tax credits, super clusters, strategic innovations, fund industrial policy, weak intellectual property protections, grossly excessive government expenditures. We've got a lot of cleaning up to do if we're going to be if we're going to realize the promise of this country, right? That's what's so sad. It's government is defeating our ability to grow wealthy and healthy from the tremendous expertise and motivation that our population has. We've got to drop the hostility to the life sciences industry. We've got to improve intellectual property protection, on which we've always been a terrible laggard. Cut taxes. Uh, and, um, in life sciences in particular, start accepting peer agency drug reviews as a qualification for marketing in this country, getting things to market faster for the benefit of ailing citizens, um, rather than having them held up for months or years in Health Health Canada. So, you know, these are a few of the measures we could take, and I think we'd find that we could unleash economic activity surprisingly quickly. Israel is a beautiful example of a country that said, why don't we have life sciences investment? Ask the question, listen to the answers, implement them, boom, it's a miracle how, how life sciences investment there is soared. Why can't we do the same? Okay, let me ask a final question. Why don't you paint a picture for listeners about what that miracle might look like? In other words, what would be the broad-based benefits of a larger and more innovative life sciences sector in Canada? Thank you. <laughs> That's a nice note, a nice note to finish on. And it's important because it's a way of looking at things that means taking one's eyes off the invoice. You know, here's your bill for drug, for drug purchases this month, Canada government. It's X billions of dollars. And looking not at those narrow accounts, but looking at the whole national economy. So, Let's take healthcare. The costs paid for drugs may go up, but the costs for amount of hospitalization, the lost lives and productivity of patients, these go down dramatically. So 
if you look at, you know, if you look at how to fund hospitals and concentrate only on individual line items, you know, you're sort of losing track of the important part of the picture, which isn't how how to manage a hospital budget. It's how to have a productive, happy, wealthier country, right? Um, more, more life sciences investment would give us um, a productive, a more productive industry. It would result in, um, depending on the uh, amount of actual revenues that are created, potentially a great many more new pharmaceuticals, which would benefit not only Canadians but the world which would generate revenue and tax revenue to fund our health care and other benefits, which would um, create a great many jobs here and improve our research base, divert, create funding for educational institutions. Um, and it would be a great, uh, a great source of growth uh, in, in the country as we... <laughs> Uh, and, and, and improve our income levels, um, as well as our health outcomes. So, and I guess, and I guess what other thing I'd say is it would help us to, um, see the benefits of a broader vision of success and investment for Canada, as opposed to the narrow and rather mean focus on, on prices. What drug companies do, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting they're better than any other industry in some way or holier than thou, but what they do is absolutely miraculous, right? Um, if you look at some of these new therapies, look at even, even COVID vaccines, like the technologies are unbelievable. And yet they, they commercialize them and produce them at great scale. The benefits from that are enormous and we should appreciate what they can do for us and be a little less penny pinching about uh, funding those those great benefits and rewarding those who provide them to us, and in particular, taking the fruits of the myths they identify, taking the pejorative views of pharmaceutical companies out of our body politic, and becoming more grateful and less hostile. Yeah, that's a great way to wrap up, Richard. I was reminded of that sense of wonder and gratitude a few years ago when a friend told me that his niece, not yet born, underwent an in utero surgery to correct for some health challenges that she was having. Just think about what an extraordinary miracle something like that is. It's a conversation that goes underappreciated in Ottawa and elsewhere, and so I'm glad to have it here. I would encourage listeners to read Richard's most recent paper, A Reality Check, Dispelling the Myths Around the Benefits of Drug Price Controls. Richard Owens, Senior Fellow at the McDonald Law Institute, Thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues to share your insights and analysis about the PMPRB and Canada's life sciences sector more generally. Great talking to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. 
Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>